Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and explore how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. I am here with Rhea Butoria, who is one of my favorite thinkers and people in the space. Rhea, I'm so excited to chat today. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chase. And likewise, it is an honor to be here. I am a huge fan of your podcast. It's contributed a lot to my learning of the space. So I'm excited for this conversation. I so appreciate that. And I can't wait to dive into all of the things on values-driven building in the space and this amazing piece that you put out a couple of months ago. But before we do that, maybe you can give a little bit of background on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole. Happy to start there. So I started my career in equity research at a traditional investment bank. Uh, I covered the fintech and payments space, and that's kind of the angle through which I started becoming interested in crypto because I just saw firsthand how antiquated and unnecessarily convoluted the entire back-end payment system was, and especially when it came to cross-border payments and remittances. And started learning about the space through that angle, quickly realized that the potential of the technology and the new economic systems that were being ideated on were much more extensible beyond just payments and realized that I needed to be focusing on this space full time. My background was doing sell-side style research. So I realized that at this point in time, when I started looking at the space, which is in 2017, there was no one that was really doing formal institutional grade research on the space in a form factor that was digestible and unbiased. And I felt like that was a gap that I could help fill and wanted to help fill. So I left Credit Suisse in 2018, joined Circle to build out the Circle Research Platform, did that uh, for about a year and a half, and then went to Fidelity Digital Assets after they launched their crypto custody and trading business unit more formally and wanted to offer analytical value-added thought leadership and content to their more conservative institutional investors and eventually got to a point where I felt like I had a solid foundational understanding of the space and actually wanted to start working with founders, uh, being at the earlier stage and actually writing checks uh, into crypto companies. So that's a little bit on how I got into crypto and how I got to where I am today. And just to clarify where I am, I am a general partner at Castle Island Ventures. I'll pause there. <laughs> I love this journey and I'm so excited to dive into how you approach the space. And you recently put out this piece around reviving trust in crypto that I thought was just so beautifully and clearly articulated around the approach that we need to be taking to the space, particularly around this idea that we need to basically like approach our building in a values forward way. And so 
you kind of lay out these specific values, which I want to dive into. But before we even do that, I would love to understand where this like values driven approach came from for you. Yeah, thank thank you. I I definitely wanted to frame it that way because I feel like we often start conversations with the technology mm. and not the rationale behind why we're doing this in the first place. And I think when you start the conversation there, you begin to make compromises on the technology side of things. And that's what leads to these catastrophes that we experienced last year with FTX and just the demise of these massive institutions that were giving us access to crypto, but we're not doing it in a way that one leveraged the properties that are uniquely enabled by this space or in a way that was aligned with the values that brought us all to this space in the first place. Mm. Yeah. So I'm curious, I mean, I guess taking a step back quickly, like one of the reasons that I think this is so grounding is especially in a bear market, it feels like a lot of the hype is gone. A lot of the craziness is gone. And so this idea of grounding ourselves in the values that we believe to be sort of most important in the space feels really powerful. And so I'm curious um, what those values are. You kind of outlined them in the piece, but I would love to walk through each of them. And maybe we can start with a broad overview and then we can dive into each of them. Sounds good. Yeah. So the ones that I landed on that I felt were just really relevant to a lot of the events that happened last year and are in no way comprehensive of all of the values and properties that are uniquely enabled by crypto. But what I landed on in the piece was one sovereignty or the ability to take control and to empower individuals to take control of their assets, their identity. Uh, the second was accountability or the ability to leverage the transparency of the systems that we have in the crypto space to place checks and balances on intermediaries. And I think one thing that I touched on in the piece also is not just place checks and balances or not just hold them accountable, but simultaneously also think about building systems where this accountability is intrinsic to the decentralized protocols that we operate. So one piece of that is leveraging cryptographic mechanisms to hold centralized institutions accountable. The second is operating decentralized protocols that obfuscate the centralized piece and replace it with smart contracts that are just innately accountable. And then the third piece or the third value or property is this idea of credible neutrality uh, or the ability to have permissionless access to the crypto economy. So this is the idea that we want 
the foundational systems that we're building applications on, you know, the lowermost layer to be as unbiased and neutral as possible. So those were kind of the three properties that I outlined or started with when I began writing the piece. Yeah, I love these points and I think they felt very grounding for me. And and I think we hear so many values being tossed around in the space as like, these are the things that we need to build with. And this is what needs to be at the forefront. Um, and so I want to dive into each of these, but I guess even before we go there, I'm curious, like, why these three stood out? And and was there like a process of elimination when you were thinking about this? Or was it more like, these are the three that feel most important to me when I think about the impact of this technology? I think these three stood out because I felt that they were the most relevant to the events that happened last year. And I think there are a number of other properties that are, you know, uniquely enabled by crypto, like composability is such a huge one. But I felt that wasn't as relevant to the conversation around how we move forward as an industry from this point. Like, what are the areas where our trust has been impacted the greatest? And these just kind of stood out as those areas and as the things that we should be focusing on to kind of rebuild that trust. Mm, yeah, I really love that. Um, so almost these these properties are the the most important for what it looks like to actually be able to trust the systems that have basically failed up until this point because we haven't built mm-hmm. any of these in mind. Exactly. Yeah, I really love that framing. And, and I want to dive into each of these. So I guess starting with sovereignty. And, and I think there's some interesting, by the way, like through lines underneath each of these that I want to dive into after we go through them. But I feel like sovereignty gets tossed around a lot. And so I'm curious when you think more broadly about what sovereignty looks like in these ecosystems and how that relates to building trust in our systems. Um, what is that dynamic? And, and you also bring up a few interesting examples that I think would be fun to dive into. Yeah, I think when I started learning about crypto, one of the things that was so exciting and novel to me was this ability to take back control and have true ownership over your assets and your information. And I think you know, within this, I think sovereignty has many different meanings and different contexts in the space. So maybe just to clarify for people who haven't read the piece, I kind of interpreted sovereignty within the piece to conflate with self-custody or the ability to take ownership, true ownership of your assets and information. and. What I kind of wrote about in this section is that that value hasn't been optimized for and it exists and it's an option for people who kind of want to jump through the hoops that are necessary 
to actually take self-custody, but the process of taking self-custody is still really complex. It places a lot of responsibility on the end user. It's not user-friendly, and there's a lot of risks that the user kind of has to take on and protect themselves against. And so as a result of self-custody still being really challenging and hard to assume, users naturally are going to gravitate towards systems that they're more familiar with, that are more centralized in nature, that manage their assets on their behalf because this is a model that they're familiar with. And I think that's like a huge failure on the part of this industry because great, we're building all of these progressively decentralizing applications that we hope will replace or complement, maybe not replace completely, their centralized counterparts. But if the point at which we onboard onto the space is still through a centralized mechanism, if that's still the best option and the trade-offs of centralized and custodial versus decentralized and non-custodial are so, there's such a gap in between them, then I think we've truly failed as an industry. Mm. This gets into like an interesting dynamic, which I think you kind of call out with talking about like account abstraction and other mechanisms for making custodying your own assets more feasible. And and I think you're getting at this here. I love this notion of like almost how much do we need to like optimize for these values and make it easy to opt into these values versus just make them possible. And it mm-hmm. seems like up until this point, we've made these things possible, but we haven't made them easy. I'm curious if that feels like it resonates with some of the way that you're thinking about sovereignty. That's a really great way of phrasing it. I think we tout these values and say, hey, this is here for the taking. If you become a security expert, if you become technically savvy, if you become comfortable with the risks associated with managing the keys associated with your digital bearer assets, which if you send to a wrong address or get compromised, there is no recovery mechanism. And that's that just seems counter to why we're all here in the first place. Mm. And it's interesting, too, because I feel like we often get into this conversation around how do we make people care about privacy and how do we help educate people on the risks of centralized parties and all that stuff? But when you really get down to it, whether or not someone decides to custody their own assets, for example, is probably much more a consequence of how challenging it is to do so than it is their individual, you know, cost-benefit analysis on centralization and decentralization to some degree. Where, yes, we could go and educate people and we could spend all these resources doing that. And that matters a lot. But also, like, if we just lower the bar 
for what's required that's probably much more effective in terms of making these things easy to adopt in the first place and likely to be adopted. That's so true. Most people aren't going to care about this notion of, oh, it's so cool that I can take ownership of my own assets. They Most people haven't experienced situations where they have actively had their trust compromised by centralized intermediaries. So it, it's really hard to convince them ba- on that basis alone. And lowering the barrier from a user experience and basically stupid proofing <laughs> this technology, that is a much more effective Trojan horse to then get them into the system. And then once they see, once they're in the system, then they have skin in the game and they're much more likely to start thinking about the values that are uniquely enabled by the system at that point in time. So then that education becomes more effective and more important. And then it becomes about using that education about what this tech can uniquely enable to retain these people within our more open, permissionless uh, economy. Mm. I really love that way of framing it. And I feel like that really nicely moves into your point around accountability. Um, Because, of course, holding institutions and the organizations around us accountable is partially about having this like baseline of sovereignty and understanding of the fact that like we default to transparency and all these things. So um, can you talk a little bit about the accountability piece? Yeah, definitely. So with this section, I kind of it, it it's kind of like a caveat to this idea of sovereignty and self-custody because I think our number and this is why I started I started with so- sovereignty because I felt that that should be our number one mission mm. going forward as it relates to the failures of the industry last year is to make it really easy or or much more easy to take custody of your own assets and have safeguards in place so that if you make a mistake it doesn't equate to losing everything however it's still unclear whether these non-custodial systems that we build will ever be as seamless and easy to use as custodial systems or quick there is this also there's also this idea of latency right the other piece of it is there are entities and institutions that may never be able to self-custody and take custody of their own assets because they're required by regulation to lean on 
you know, a third party custodian. So with these users in mind, how can we leverage mechanisms that we have at our disposal to build centralized systems that are more accountable? How can we use mechanisms to build systems that are more accountable that we we can have some level of assurance around that is also just not obtainable in traditional asset classes because these assets don't exist on a auditable, transparent ledger. So that's kind of what I wanted to articulate in this section. Mm. Yeah, and I think to me the interesting thing about accountability is that it requires a certain amount of like pressure being put on these institutions, which I think requires education. Like at a very weird level, I almost think of this in a similar way to like consent of the governed, where a government is really only powerful because the people who it helps govern have kind of in some way either implicitly or explicitly like agreed and obviously that's a sort of uh utopian version of it and i think in practice you have things like violence and all that that plays into it but in any case um there's this element of like if you want this these centralized entities that have a lot of power um and that are custodying your assets to actually be able to be held accountable it feels like there needs to be some pressure which i think does require education and so i'm curious how do you think about that pressure um Maybe instead it comes from like regulators, which also feels like there's a level of education required. So, yeah, I'm Mm -hmm. curious how you think about the burden of education there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the education, unfortunately, was a painful education for so many people last year, which Mm -hmm. was that so many people were impacted by the demise of FTX. and. Unfortunately, the most painful education is the best education. So I think there is kind of this natural pressure that centralized institutions are feeling because without providing accountability, without providing transparency and insight into whether these centralized exchanges have enough assets to cover the liabilities or the deposits of assets that users have on their platform, they're just not going to succeed in attracting users. So I think that's the point at which we're starting now. And, you know, this concept of proof of reserves where you use cryptography to prove that the liabilities that you owe to your users and clients of your platform match the assets or are covered by the assets that you have available to you. This concept actually 
has been around since 2014, 2015, I think. And when Mount Gox collapsed, a number of exchanges kind of came out and said, hey, we're going to publish a proof of reserve. And initially, there was a lot of momentum behind it. And people were really gung-ho about it, but it kind of tapered off. And I think there was only one exchange that ended up publishing proofs of reserve on a consistent basis. And then, you know, a natural question might be, how do you ensure that that doesn't happen again? What's different now? And I think it's just that so many more people are aware that there are ways to prevent this from happening again and have been impacted and and the just the the relative amount of value that was destroyed in the process with FTX versus Mt. Gox is orders of magnitude higher i think all of those things are reasons why it will be different this time, combined with, to your point, pressure from regulators who hopefully require the exchanges, custodians, stablecoins that they regulate to provide cryptographic proofs of reserve. Hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting when you talk about that. It makes me think of the the world of U.S. politics and how you'll often see these like really terrible events happening and everybody pushes towards big regulation or changes or whatever. And then it kind of fizzles out. And then we have that happening over and over and over again. Um, and I think part of the reason that happens there is probably because there are players on both sides a lot of these things have become politicized and so you start to see this like tug back and forth whereas it does feel like a lot of the accountability mechanisms for crypto more broadly are just like common sense regulation which for some reason we still struggle to get common sense regulation <laughs> but in any case it does feel like there's this element of um neutrality is a weird word to describe it but kind of of just like this just makes sense and it's not really hurting anyone to do, um, which does make me hopeful. But but it's interesting to watch these types of, you know, um, catastrophic things happen and, and look at the past and see that we've had a lot of these things happen and still haven't seen a lot of push towards change. Yeah. And another thing I'll mention around why, why I hope this time will be different is also around the maturation of technology and mechanisms that we have available to actually perform proofs of reserve and 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 hold these institutions accountable that we didn't have 4 or 5 years ago you know i think one piece of criticism around what's known as like the merkel method where you, you know, combine all of the balances 
um, of clients at an exchange and then allow them to check their balance against this um, this proof and ensure that it has been included is now we've made so much progress on the development of you know privacy preserving mechanisms leveraging zero knowledge proofs and there's been so much work that's been done you know shout out Nick Carter founding partner at Castle Island Ventures who has done so much work around standardizing proofs of reserve so that exchanges and custodians and and other types of entities have a playbook to go off of and a, a standardized mechanism they're not starting from scratch and they're you know you don't have to test it out as much anymore the body of work the mechanisms the frameworks they exist now mm. so hopefully that also lowers the barrier to being accountable Mm. going back to the idea of making it easy not just possible which i think is really interesting Mm -hmm. um and then the last piece that you touch on here is this idea of credible neutrality and i thought this was like a really interesting one in the context of trust and what that looks like so maybe you can give a little bit of a an overview on why you felt like credible neutrality was so important here and and you also dive into some interesting examples around MEV, which might be fun to dive into just a little bit. Yeah. So I thought credible neutrality and censorship resistance was important to mention because I think ultimately that is the reason that we are building these systems, right? And Why do all of this work if at the end of the day, the foundational systems on which we're building applications aren't permissionless, aren't credibly neutral? You know, we're we're trying to shift and move away from this world where a single centralized entity or group of entities can decide what you do with your assets, your data, your information. And if a single entity or group of entities on these public blockchain networks, and, you know, I talk about Ethereum specifically, can determine how you can use Ethereum, who can use Ethereum, then, you know, what's left of these systems that we're building? How are they innately, fundamentally different from centralized versions? And why are why are we doing all of this work? Why are we spending so much time trying to solve the above problems and enable sovereignty and accountability if at the end of the day, someone's going to still decide how you can use your assets and who can use these systems. Yeah, because I guess part of what's fundamental to trust is in systems is knowing that you can't be and won't be denied service by some centralized entity that doesn't like you for some specific reason. Yeah, or like 
imposes whatever restrictions that they have on users of those systems. Mm. Maybe they don't want to, but they have to because, you know, they're they're in a jurisdiction. And and maybe we can get into what I'm alluding to here. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> so, you know, I think this discussion about credible neutrality emerged or was was kind of brought to the forefront. It was definitely already taking place among a group of stakeholders that have been thinking about this way before it really entered the public discourse. But, you know, what I highlighted in, in the piece is that in, I think, summer of 2020, we had a lot of concerns about attacks to Ethereum's credible neutrality emerge when OFAC specifically decided to sanction smart contracts associated with um, Tornado Cash. And to avoid being in non-compliance with OFAC, different players in the ecosystem decided to censor transactions that were associated with the mixer. And that just raised a lot of questions around, okay, are our systems robust against this kind of censorship? Like if a group of entities decided to censor transactions, can those transactions still reasonably be validated by or, or you know, balanced by a group of non-censoring entities? Ultimately, you want something like Ethereum to be oblivious to the nature of the transaction. And it's not up to Ethereum to decide what is valid or not. That should take place at higher layers of the system. This isn't a conversation around, you know, what what is valid or not. This is a conversation around who gets to decide what is valid or not. And And I think the fears around censorship were exacerbated because Ethereum was simultaneously moving from proof of work to proof of stake. And what happened as a result of that transition is that in the process of originating a transaction to having that transaction being confirmed on chain, that kind of pipeline of stakeholders and that process evolved. So now in proof of stake Ethereum, a user originates a transaction and it gets blasted out, you know, to nodes in the system that have a view, have their own view of the the mempool, which is kind of the waiting area before a transaction gets included on chain. And in order to ensure that the validator set stays as neutral 
and decentralized as possible. The process of block construction and block proposing were separated out into two different components. So now validators are only in charge of proposing blocks that are submitted to them from a new entity known as a block builder. And the reason that this happened is that the process of capturing MEV or maximal extractable value is a really specialized process and it requires specialization. It requires creating advanced algorithms that can simulate the most optimal construction of a block. And in order to ensure that anyone can join the network as a validator and doesn't need to have this specialized skill, this infrastructure, these algorithms, let's outsource the process of building a block that is optimized for MEV to a new entity known as a block builder. So great, now we have the ability to maintain a decentralized validator set. But, okay, let's take a step back. Now we've just pushed the specialization and the ability to have economies of scale to this new type of entity, which is the block builder. And if block builders are proposing fully constructed blocks to validators who are, you know, profit-seeking entities and are going to propose a block that is the most valuable, then there's this question around if these small group of specialized entities start censoring or are censoring within the blocks that they propose, then are we enabling a weak form of censorship on chain and are block proposers de facto censoring by proposing blocks to the network that are, uh, you know, that are not censorship resistant. So that was the big question that we are grappling with as an industry when it comes to credible neutrality and censorship on chain. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I would be curious how something like this type of censorship compares to the original fork of Ethereum from the DAO hack, where you could argue that that was censoring a form of truth in order to opt for a different reality in an opinionated way. And so at, at the protocol level. And so I'm curious how you see those two things com in comparison and if it's sort of the maturity of Ethereum that makes something like this particularly. I mean, of course, like blocking access is a concern, period. But um, yeah, I'm curious how you think about that. I think the 
root of the answer to that question goes back to who is deciding the outcome. Is it a small single group of entities or is it the community more broadly that's behind this vision and is making that ultimate determination? What we want to stay away from is a small group of entities making that decision. I think it's different if it's a more democratic and distributed determination um, of what's valid and what's not, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And of course, it brings up interesting questions around what it means to be in the minority of people or institutions or whatever it might be in these systems that we call credibly neutral. But even if we rely on sort of more democratic means of central of censorship, we still run into interesting questions around what it means to censor minority stakeholders um, because that's what the majority wants. Yeah, agreed. And maybe we don't have a good solution to that yet. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because now you have this specialized set of entities that are creating blocks. And now the question becomes, how do we hold them accountable? Mm. And there are, you know, a number of initiatives that are being researched and proposed that would allow validators to hold block builders accountable or kind of circumvent um, whatever kind of preferences or restrictions that they're imposing on blocks that they're constructing. One mechanism is through transaction inclusion lists where validators kind of come up with a set of transactions that they believe are valid and require block builders to include those transactions within a block that they're constructing unless it's full. That would kind of Mm. allow validators to hold block builders accountable. Another mechanism that's being explored is using something like Eigenlayer, which is a restaking protocol, to allow for the creation of partial blocks where block builders construct a piece of a block that may be censored, but validators construct the second piece of the block, which includes transactions that the block builder may have censored. And then I think the last most ambitious initiative is around decentralizing the process of block building in itself so that you have a more diverse set of builders that are distributed across different jurisdictions that are coming together and each building partial pieces of a block and putting it together to construct a full block. So then even if you have certain builders that are censoring, you'll hopefully on the flip side have builders that are non-censoring 
and will include transactions that certain builders may have censored in the construction of this whole block. So there's a lot of open questions around each of these mechanisms, and I don't think that these mechanisms are all even super comprehensive of what we can do to kind of address potential censorship by a builder or a group of builders. But that's kind of where we stand on this discussion around credible neutrality and censorship resistance. And it's just exciting to see and know that there's so much pressure from a number of different state group of stakeholders in the space to solve this problem. And I think that's what makes me optimistic that we ultimately will end up with a system that is credibly neutral and censorship resistant. Mm. Yeah. And I guess credibly neutral systems are not built overnight. So it's working through exactly. these types of things that I think makes all of this stronger. Um, Ria, this was so wonderful. Before we wrap up, real quick fire question. What are you feeling most excited about in the space right now? What am I feeling most excited about? I think it is progress against each of these values. There's to see the industry kind of rise up and not brush off what happened last year, but really internalize it and still be optimistic that we can create systems that rival centralized alternatives and that address the challenges that we faced as an industry last year has been goosebump inducing to me um, to see the discussion around things like account abstraction and standardizing that and propagating that on L2s to see the amount of research and effort that's gone into thinking about, you know, how do we leverage crypto economic mechanisms, cryptography in new and interesting ways to ensure that our systems are credibly neutral, to see the amount of effort that's gone into um, pushing forward proof of reserves and getting even in the the early days to see those centralized platforms that are still standing commit to being held accountable by regulators by their end users that that makes me really excited and optimistic about the future well i love that ria this was so fun where can people learn more about you um castle island all of the content that you're creating all the things Yes. So I am at Ria Butoria on Twitter. Our website is castleisland.vc. We also have our own podcast on the brink with Castle Island, where we explore a lot of the things that we talked about today. So definitely check all of those out. Amazing. Ria, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so fun. Thank you so much for having me, Chase. This was awesome. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. 
I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.